This Dharma talk by John Sutherland Roshi, Freedom's Body 3, was given at Springs Mountain Sangha in Colorado Springs, Colorado, on October 16th, 2009. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. How's everybody doing? So we've been talking about um, the body of awakening, freedom's body. And um, last night we were speaking about how the self is something that exists partly within ourselves and partly not within ourselves. Partly it partakes of the larger world and of the vastness. And so it isn't bounded by our skin. It is continuous with the world and continuous beyond that and through that with the vastness itself. So if that's the case, then there must be activities of that self which are also not bounded by um, our internal worlds and if there is uh, an embodiment of awakening there must also be an enactment of awakening by which I mean there must be something we do to turn our awakening into matter to turn our awakening into the stuff of everyday life. It's lovely if about day six on a retreat like this we're a room full of bodhisattvas radiating light and goodness. But it's not enough. That's the embodiment, maybe, of awakening. But the next thing to do is to enact it, to make it real. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. And um, it probably won't come as a great shock to hear that within this, as in the embodiment of awakening, there is an aspect of form and an aspect of emptiness as well. And so the enactment of awakening uh, takes place at the intersection of the form aspect of this activity and the empty aspect of this activity just as our self in the way we've been speaking about it takes place at that same intersection Um, so the form aspect of the enactment of awakening we're going to end up with by the end of the week the sentence is going to be so long it's going to be hard to well, fight our I know way from out my of. military training what you do with that you make it <laughs> the form aspect of <laughs> yeah, the enactment of awakening uh, okay you work on that <laughs> but tomorrow we'll have it um <clears throat> Okay, so so the the form aspect of that one of the one of the things one of the ways that that's been referred to in traditional Buddhism is as the Brahma Viharas, which are the heavenly dwelling places or the boundless states of heart and mind. And um, in, in in way too brief summary, the four Brahma Viharas, the four heavenly and boundless states of the heart mind, 
are loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. And I'll talk some more about each one of those. But in a nutshell, um, loving kindness is like love, but it's a specific kind of love. It's a specific form of love. It's a love that uh, doesn't require anything to fulfill itself, doesn't require a payback. It's a kind of um, what we might call a, a non-attached love. And compassion is um, the ability to understand the suffering of others, to be concerned about the suffering of others, and to wish to act to end that suffering. And one of the things that might be interesting to you about the traditional formulation of compassion is the, the thing that you're moved to do in, in compassion is not to comfort the person who's suffering, but to end the sources of their suffering both internal and external. So whatever it is inside of them that's causing them to suffer, whatever it is in the world, whatever the circumstances in the world that are causing suffering, your impulse, your desire is to end that the causes of suffering, not necessarily to comfort the person. And I think that's a very different idea than what we usually think of as compassion, which we think of as a kind of sympathy, a kind of... Um, um, fellow feeling for someone. Um, sympathetic joy is the the ability to take joy in the joy of others, to take delight in the delight and the gladness of other people and other things around you, and to take delight and joy in the causes of joy and delight in the world, to want to support those causes. And equanimity is um, talked about as the protector of all the rest. Equanimity is the thing that makes the others possible and uh, guards them in a way. And equanimity is not, again, what our stereotype of it might be. It's not detachment or indifference. In fact, um, Within the Brahma Viharas, they, they each are an antidote to a particular poison, and they each have what's called a near enemy. And a near enemy is the delusion that might be mistaken for the Brahma Vihara, for the virtue. So the near enemy of equanimity is detachment, is indifference. So we, if we think that it's about detachment or indifference, we, we've fallen for the near enemy rather than um, being centered in equanimity itself. And equanimity is seen as a kind of steadiness, it's true, um, an ability to hold steady no matter what is going on around you, and also an impartiality. A receiving of everything with equality. And I'll come back to all of these and talk some more about them again. But that's a tremendously important thing. What do, what do we mean when we say to receive all things equally? Does that mean to treat everything the same? No. But it means to meet everything with the same openness. 
no matter what. That's equanimity. To, to have the capacity to meet everything with the same openness. So, in the Mahayana tradition, of which Zen is uh, a part, one of the most important th- mm, things about the Brahma Viharas is their connection with bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is a Sanskrit word which is usually translated something like the the desire or the motiv- motivation to attain enlightenment so that you can work for the enlightenment of all beings. And that's true. And it's also true that if if the Brahma Viharas are the kind of enactment of, of awakening in the world, there's the things you actually do, the attitudes you actually hold. Um, bodhicitta is our desire, having seen the big picture, the larger view, having seen the view of the vastness, our desire that that truth that large view be enacted as quickly as possible in the world. And we do that through the Brahma Viharas. So we see the large view, we experience the vastness, that part of ourself which is native to the vastness, which knows that radiant view of things, um, wants to enact that immediately in the world and we do that through the Brahma Viharas and we do that even though we know we're never going to we're never going to reproduce the radiant world in the material world that's impossible we were talking earlier in the week about how the material world is by its nature unperfected and incomplete and that means that we get to participate in it we get to co-create we get to dream it on ourselves. Um, So we immediately try to turn our bodhicitta, our our larger view, our understanding of the radiance of things into the matter of the Brahma Viharas, even knowing that we're not going to get it right, that it's not going to be perfect, that we're going to fall short all the time, that the world is never going to be completely radiant. or never only radiant is a more accurate way to say it. It's going to be both radiant and like a strobe light <laughs> at the same time. Um, we do that anyway because having seen the radiant world, our desire is so great for it to be as real as it can be, as actual as it can be in the material world around us. Um, I was really happy to find and to kind of see for the first time a a small passage in um, the morning prayer that you say in Judaism. This is something you say every morning. And this, this little bit of it goes like this. With the light of your countenance, speaking obviously to God, with the light of your countenance, with the light that shines from your face, you gave us a love of kindness, righteousness, blessing, compassion, life, and peace. And to me, the most important thing in that is that it's 
the light from your countenance, when we see the radiant world, because that's just another way of you know, saying the, the light of the face of God, when we see that, it gives us a love of kindness, a love of compassion, a love of peace. It's not enough to say we're going to practice toward it or we have an aspiration toward it or we think it would be a good idea. It's saying we love it. We should love it. We must love it. It is the natural state of things to love it when we have seen the radiant face of God. So with the Brahma Viharas, we get on with that loving. You know, imperfect as it is, partial as it is, not complete as it is, we just get on with it because it's really important that we do that. And we do it because we love it. So, um, I wanted to, to speak of a, a couple of ways to look at the Brahma Viharas in, in general. And one of the things that they're also called a synonym for the Brahma Viharas, which means the heavenly dwelling places, are the um, Apramanyas, which are is most literally translated as the boundlessnesses. I say that five times fast. The boundlessnesses. <laughs> so, this is this boundless state of heart mind, and um, you it, you might hear in that an echo of our own four boundless vows the four vows that we make um, every day or several times a day, a couple times a day during the retreat, which are completely impossible, and we make them anyway. And um, in the same way, the Brahma Viharas are boundless. They don't have edges. They don't have limits. They're unconditional. Um, we um, We don't feel loving kindness or offer compassion to people we like or in circumstances when it's easy. There are no, um, there are no conditions on it like that. And um, they're without limit. And before we all go, how am I possibly going to generate limitless quantities of compassion, loving kindness, <laughs> equanimity, and sympathetic joy? You don't have to. That's the great thing. Because in the Mahayana view, these boundless qualities are the true nature of things. They're already here. They're already all around us. All we have to do is liberate them from whatever situation we're in. They're here. We, what we agree to do is not to be endless generators of these qualities. What we agree to do is to be the people who come into any situation and look for the way to liberate the inherent compassion loving-kindness, sympathetic joy, and equanimity that are in any situation. So we don't have to make it. We don't have to will it. We don't have to be that good. We don't have to do any of that. We just have to commit ourselves to looking for it everywhere, to encouraging it, to to do what we can to make it um, more available and accessible in the world. Um, so one of the things that's great about that as well is that the Brahma Viharas are not the same as our emotional states. They're much bigger than that. They come from a place outside our own internal landscapes and situations. So, for example, 
it's possible to feel anger and compassion at the same time. Hmm. I think we have this idea that in order to be compassionate, we have to be <coughs> completely loving, completely open, com- you know, everything has to be sort of perfect and in place. And that's really not true because the compassion, in a sense, doesn't have anything to do with us. You can be really, really angry at someone and you can still feel compassion for them because it's not about you it's not about how you feel you bodhisattvas <laughs> which is who you all are you bodhisattvas are agreeing to be the occasion for compassion in the situation whether you yourself feel it or not you are agreeing to act for compassion in a situation. You are agreeing to try to see what the compassionate thing to do is, even if you're not completely there. Even if you've got a whole bunch of other stuff going on. It doesn't matter because it's not about you. And that's the nature of the Bodhisattva way. It's not about you. In the sense of the you that's bounded by your skin. In the sense of the you that feels strong emotions and has big opinions about things. The Bodhisattva way is the way of stepping into that you which exists both inside you and outside you, is continuous through your skin, which is continuous with the world and continuous with the vastness. The Bodhisattva is the one who knows that about herself. The Bodhisattva is the one who knows that about everyone and everything else and treats everyone and everything else in that way. Um, Okay, so... Yes, please, please do. And so the Bodhisattva is not the person who finally is completely there. It's the person at the moment where they are there. More. Just when when you do that, when you enact awakening in that way, at that moment you're the bodhisattva. Mm-hmm. It's not like a final state that you've achieved and will rest in forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, no, yeah. The bodhisattva <laughs> is. Um, <laughs> yeah, is 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 a state of being rather than a yeah, yeah a destination. Yeah, that's true. That's it's always true. accessible. It's always accessible. Sorry. No, no, that's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah, always accessible, no matter how you're feeling. <laughs> Fortunately, <laughs> it has nothing to do, you know, with how we're feeling. Which also means that, um, selfishly speaking, it can be a way of towing us out of how we're feeling. You know, it can be a way of towing us out of how we're feeling. That it's a way of reminding ourselves that there's something bigger than the immediate local turmoil that's going on inside of ourselves, <laughs> and um, and and can change it in an instant just to remember that. Yeah. And that's not some kind of false manipulation. That's yeah. a real yeah. change yeah. that can happen just like yeah. that. Yeah. The, the, I mean, the really strange, mysterious, bizarre, radical view of the Mahayana, if you think about it, is that 
compassion, loving kindness, equanimity, and sympathetic joy are the way things are. That's realistic. And when we get stuck in negative or partial or um, you know self-concerned states, we're being unrealistic. Forget nasty or you know unpleasant or in pain. Unrealistic. We have separated ourselves out from the way things most truly are. are. That's that's a very radical idea. You know, it really is. And um, so so when we agree to the Brahma Viharas, when we agree to look for them inside ourselves and in the world, wherever we are, what we're doing is we're, in, we're on a search for realism. We're on a search for the truest thing. And we're saying that's what we want to support. That's where we, that's where we take our stand. We take our stand in that kind of largeness and realism of things. Okay, so that's the boundless piece, the boundless state of heart and mind. And um, the, other, the other way that they are thought of is as the heavenly, heavenly abodes, uh, heavenly dwelling places. And you can see that in what we've just been saying, that there's a way in which um, to commit to the Brahma Viharas is to commit to uh, encouraging heaven, <laughs> to encouraging the, the light of God's countenance to be visible all the time for us. And there's another more local aspect, too, to bring it back to the personal and the particular. Um, we know so well in our own lives that, that there are gates to heaven and hell around us all the time and that the gate to heaven or hell can open with a phone call or a conversation, or a misstep, a misunderstanding, and boom, you know, the gate one way or the other flies open. One of the things that the Brahma Viharas are about for ourselves in the way that the practice reflects on ourselves, is we understand that there are more things than us acting in the universe, which is to say there are bad things that happen. There are bad circumstances in the world. There are gates of heaven and hell that open having nothing to do with us. Um, The kind of new age idea that you completely create your own reality is sickening to me. Um, If that's the way things are, I'm just going to put a bullet through my head right now because the thought that I am only ever going to be able to live inside what I can imagine, what I personally can imagine, is really horrifying to me, you know. We create the world together. The world is created by all of us and the trees and the stars and the cars and the dinosaurs and all of it together. That's what's creating the world. That's what's creating reality. Do we have an effect on how we experience it? You betcha. And that's where the gates to heaven and hell come in all the time. We can choose to, to see the heaven of things. We can choose to see the hell of things. But please, you know, we don't, we're not responsible for everything that's happening. And there are circumstances that cause great suffering and great joy for people over which we have absolutely no control whatsoever. That's part of the condition of being alive. And it seems to me that the idea that you create your own reality in, in total 
is a defense, a childish defense against the fact that there are lots of forces in the world that we have no control over whatsoever. That's life. So now what? You know. So because that is so, the Brahma Viharas become all the more important because they are a way we can mitigate the most damage, create the most heaven under under circumstances that are sometimes very difficult and very painful. Okay, end of rant. <laughs> I have to tag something onto that, which is, in fact, life wouldn't have made it so far if a single view yeah. could yeah. prevail. What was the first view? That's a great question. What was the first view that set this whole thing in motion? Right? The first organism that had a view and out... Surely it was... That's been the problem ever since. We're, we're trapped in some single-celled organism. And it's just like ramified and gotten more and more elaborate. Oh, it all comes clear to me now. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so, um, maybe, maybe an addendum to the rant is that, that a, con- a consequence of all of that is, um, is that the Brahma Viharas are not sentimental. They're not nice little virtues, you know, we should cultivate. They're really, really hard work. In the face of the, the partiality and the imperfection of the world, to be the ones not the only ones, but some of the ones committed to, um, to looking for kindness and compassion and decency and uh, steadiness in such a world is really hard work and really tests us because, because it doesn't have necessarily to do with how we feel because we might be feeling really unhappy or really scared or really angry. Um, so, when we do it anyway, despite how we're feeling, when it raises our anger, our um, disappointment, when it raises those feelings, it provides the opportunity for us to purify those feelings. So, again, we have this sense not of trying to replace our negative states with positive states, but allowing our commitment to the decent things, to the helpful things, to the kind things, allowing our commitment to those things to actually magnetize and raise up all the places in us that aren't feeling decent and kind and helpful, that are feeling like, I don't want to do this again, or I hate this, or I'm exhausted, or stop it, get over it. You know, whatever, whatever those kinds of reactions we have, we let those be brought to the surface, and we let them be purified in the fire of the hard work of the Brahma Viharas, in the fire of our commitment anyway to loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Okay? So, um, let me see what I want to do. I, maybe, maybe what I'll do is just say a few kind of idiosyncratic things about particularly loving-kindness and compassion. 
And then I'll leave it there and, and open it for, if Sarah has something she wants to add, okay, open and open it for discussion. Um, so just to kind of throw these into the mix as a way of, of helping to understand them. Again, I wanted to say about the reason I use the word loving kindness when some people use love to translate maitri or metta, which is the, the Pali word for it, is because um, loving kindness is a specific kind of love, as, as I mentioned before. It's, a, it's a, a caring for another independent of our self-interest and without an ulterior motive. There are lots of kinds of love that are different than that. So it's independent of our self-interest and without ulterior motive. That's a pretty good definition of non-attachment. Not that we don't care, but that we care without what it's going to get us, what it means for us. And, um, and, the, root, and the reason I like to use the kindness part, the loving-kindness part, is that the root of Maitri, or metta, is a word that means friend. And um, the Buddha actually talk about, talked about loving-kindness as being like the constancy of friendship, like that quality of true friendship that is undeserting, mm-hmm. that it doesn't desert us. And so there's, a, there, there's an undeserting, friendly quality to loving-kindness that's very important. Um, also, that with loving-kindness and with, with all of the Brahma-viharas, um, our feeling them, our embodying them, is not dependent on what the other person is doing or feeling. We feel them regardless. We feel loving-kindness loving kindness regardless of what the circumstances are or what the other person is feeling. It's not conditional, and it's not the usual kind of exchange we make. Um, I, like to, I like to think of loving-kindness as a kind of bridge between the, the here-and-now world of form and the radiant world of emptiness. And... Um, it, it makes me think of a, a quote I've mentioned before that Shimon Perez, the Israeli politician or statesman, depending on your viewpoint, um, was was w- once asked, um, you know, it was like the 798th piece thing maybe, and they asked him, is this finally it? Is this the light at the end of the tunnel? And he said, he said, hey, we've got the light. What we need is the tunnel. <laughs> you know? and, and, and that's what loving kindness is for me. It's, it, it's the tunnel. We have the light. We know what the light is. We know what the radiant world looks like and feels like and should be like. What we need is the tunnel to get from here to there. And the Bodhisattva way is the willingness to dig tunnels. You know, it's the willingness to pick up the shovel and, and, and make those bridges, those tunnels of loving kindness between here and there, between the realms. Um, Here's a kind of classical traditional story about, about loving kindness. <clears throat> it's one that's told about the Indian teacher Asanga. Um, there is a, a, a bit of Buddhist mythology that there is a Buddha of the next age, the Buddha to come, who's called Maitreya. And his name, Maitreya, maybe her name, wouldn't that be wonderful, um, <laughs> is connected to Maitri, to, to um, loving kindness. 
and to friendship. So the sense is that somewhere up in the heavens, the Buddha of the next age is sitting there quietly loving the world. So Asanga decided it would be much better to have Maitreya down in the world, actually loving the world from uh, a closer position. So he went off into a cave, and he did really hard practice for 12 years, trying to invoke Maitreya, the Buddha, to come into the world. And after 12 years of very hard practice and absolutely nothing happening, no, not a taste, a touch, not a feather's breadth of, of Maitreya, he got really discouraged, and so he decided to give it up and walk into town. And as he was walking into town from the cave, he came across a dog who had been badly wounded lying in the street. And he was immediately filled with loving kindness and compassion and went rushing over to this dog to see in what way he could help. And as soon as he bent down toward the dog, what happened? Maitreya appeared. (laughs) (laughs) And, And the sense of the story, the moral of the story, you know, which is pretty obvious, is it's not enough to sit in the cave for 12 years and, 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 try, and try to mentally bring Maitreya, bring loving kindness into the world. Maitreya, this is, and this is Sarah's point, Maitreya is evoked in the world every time we act with compassion, every time we act with loving kindness. And that's probably the only way Maitreya is ever going to get into the world, is by what we do. Um, and we can do that over and over and over again. And maybe we can do it so much and so continuously that that's what it feels like to have Maitreya in the world, you know, is all of our continual collective acts of compassion and loving kindness. Okay. And, uh, and I'll just say one more thing about compassion and then stop. Um, I... I intimated earlier that we tend to think of compassion as a kind of empathy. And it's true that it is an ability to understand why something might really be hurting somebody else, an ability to either feel that pain or to imagine what it would be like to feel that pain. But in the, in the traditional formulation, that wasn't what compassion was. Compassion was the understanding that people suffer. Now, that might seem like a small difference, but it can make a really large difference because if compassion is the understanding that people suffer, you don't have to feel empathy with a person suffering to get that they're suffering, to feel compassion for them. There are people and actions and situations in this world I have a very difficult time empathizing with. It's hard for me to feel my way into what would motivate someone to, and you can fill in your, the blank for yourself. It's not natural to me to think that I understand that. Empathy, empathy is the ability to actually feel what someone else is feeling or to imagine what it must be like to feel that. Okay, And I'm saying that compassion is something different. Or in the traditional formulation, compassion is something different. It's the deep understanding that beings suffer. So in order to understand that beings suffer, you don't have to be able to empathize with how they're suffering. So if someone commits a heinous act, if, if my compassion is dependent on my empathizing, I might not be able to do that. But if my compassion is dependent on my understanding that they're suffering, 
I'm there. I got that. I can do that. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So that little, that little difference, I think, makes a difference. Makes a big kind of difference. So, um, then we're, we're looking at um, compassion, not... Compassion is a way of understanding how to live in the presence of suffering both other people's and our own. Not to turn away from it. And that's a very big thing, a simple thing. Developing the ability to live in the presence of suffering. But it's huge because it makes so much else possible. If we're not fleeing, everything else becomes possible after that. That's interesting. Because the word that makes the word make sense. Because come is the with. Mm-hmm. It's to be with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not necessarily to feel it, to identify with it, but yeah. to be in its company. To be in its company. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And just to stay yeah. means that all these other things can happen, whereas to leave cuts off all those possibilities. So even if what happens is partial, even if I can't go all the way toward completely empathizing with you and your situation I can go this far or this far or this far because I'm willing to stay and um, and it's the willingness to stay open over time so that our minds might be changed our hearts might be changed we don't understand now we can't get there now but sometimes compassion is just being willing to stay open to the possibility that I might understand something differently I'm something new might happened that would cause me to see it differently and again that's the staying with the willingness to be open and have my mind changed Um, and maybe the last thing I want to say about compassion which is a companion to that and and I put it next to it because it's in one way it might seem contradictory but I think they're both really important um Compassion is the willingness to be pierced. It's the willingness to be pierced by what you see or hear or understand. Um, Compassion can be bloody and messy because it's also bringing our own passions, our own deep feelings to the situation. It can also mean that. It can be our willingness to be bloody and muddy and messy and get down with it. If we're willing to be pierced by, by suffering, what we discover is that that which pierces us is also inside of us. It's already inside of us. And so it makes that, the piercing makes that connection between what is outside and what is inside. And we see that, in fact, we have that sorrow, we have that suffering, we have that very human condition within us as well. So um, things become, in the language we're speaking this week, more whole. Because by allowing ourselves to be pierced, we've connected 
that field outside and the field inside. So it turns our wounds into medicine for someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and yes, and their wounds into medicine for us, yeah. right? Yeah. Because then, who's zooming who? You know, who's who's healing who in that moment? In the in the just and loving gaze, who's giving and who's receiving? Yeah. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at johnsutherlanddharmaworks.org.